morning and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is the Ontolog Forum, and today, uh, January 19th, year 2006, we have part two of Dr. Leo Ober's session on what is an ontology, a briefing on the range of semantic models. Uh, and since this is a continuation from last week, we will skip the introduction rounds and go straight to uh, Dr. Ober's presentation, which will be followed by a discussion and a question and answer session. So, it's all yours, Leo. Okay, uh, we're actually starting on uh, slide nine, uh, the ontology spectrum. Uh, just to kind of repeat uh, what we're after here and what this uh, briefing is about, uh, we're we had a uh, brief definition of what an ontology is, and uh, one way we define this is terms in terms of uh, increasingly more expressive semantic models. And we use this ontology spectrum kind of to uh, display the usual range of models uh, when we talk about semantic models. <clears throat> so slide nine, and we covered most of this, um, uh, looks at again, uh, the range from the lower left to the upper right, uh, uh, where the lower left is characterized as weak semantics, meaning less expressive semantics, and the upper right is strong semantics or more expressive semantics in the model uh, uh, that occurs along that line. So as we go from lower left to upper right, then we become more and more expressive in our uh, semantic models. So, the way stations we've defined were uh, taxonomy. Th this is in uh, black font, um, and uh, there's a red node for each of these. So uh, taxonomy, thesaurus, conceptual model, and logical theory. And uh, we roughly characterized uh, as uh, the an ontology uh, begins uh, approximately the halfway point. So uh, above includes conceptual model and logical theory. Uh, and we characterize, if you recall, uh, that a conceptual model in a, is a weak ontology, and we characterize what we meant by that. Uh, and a logical theory is what we call a strong uh, ontology. And uh, we're going to cover, we covered some of that last time. We'll cover the remainder. Um, and by what we mean by this is, of course, uh, where we want to go is in terms of a strong ontology. So this is trying to situate um, some of the concepts uh, and model types we talk about uh, as a larger community and uh, situate them with respect, respect to expressiveness. And this is uh, roughly the expressiveness uh, of the semantic model. So uh, the red uh, font, uh, we characterize the parent-child relation at uh, roughly that model level. So for a taxonomy, and there could be uh, both weak and strong versions of taxonomy, the weak version is uh, an arbitrary, ultimately, relationship between a parent and child we characterize as just is subclassification of. So some child node is in a sub is subclassification of uh, with respect to its parent. And we gave some examples. Uh, <clears throat> and in some sense, the hierarchy of your uh, file folders uh, 
represents an extremely weak taxonomy because uh, the nature of the relationship between the subfolders and larger folders is inconsistent semantically and not well defined. Whereas a strong taxonomy, uh, we suggested, might have uh, what we characterize as the is-subclass relation, which is really introduced at um, the conceptual model level in uh, this diagram. Um, and so, well, so what we did was go through taxonomy, thesaurus, conceptual model, and began to go through logical theory, characterizing each of these uh, model types, uh, giving giving a definition, uh, some examples, uh, as in both cases, weak and strong, if it was appropriate. Um, we distinguished the notion of term versus concept, uh, which is important for uh, thesauri in particular, uh, which typically has uh, term relationships, meaning words or phrases. We're not using a term here in, in the logical sense, uh, but rather in a, uh, as characterizing um, the, the things, the English words and phrases um, that might be expressed in a taxonomy, uh, in particular in a thesaurus, which is a uh, form of a strong taxonomy focused on terms, uh, versus concept, uh, which uh, is introduced uh, at the strong taxonomy level um, but also uh, more uh, saliently, if you will, at the conceptual model logical theory level. And we also uh, underscored that uh, by concept here we mean um, the representation of the meaning that perhaps the term, the word or phrase indexes. Uh, now concept is sometimes a loaded uh, term, if you will, um, in in the in in the ontology and ontology engineering and philosophical and logical literature, uh, so a, we're characterizing an equivalent um, uh, term for that might be something like idea. So uh, the idea or concept, perhaps in your mental model, uh, uh, that we want to express and model uh, in a uh, engineering sense. Uh, for our software uh, tools to take advantage of. So the form of ontology we're characterizing here, and in fact all these way station models, uh, semantic models, is in terms of um, the uh, software engineering uh, uh, construct. So we're not concerned about developing a, uh, a logical ontology on paper uh, or in uh, you know, text, uh, except insofar as it's going to become a model uh, for a uh, computer representation uh, usable by software. So with that, kind of that all behind us, um, uh, what we'd like to do is jump to, uh, well, so let me show you slide 10, uh, which is where I just superimpose uh, these kind of lodges is uh, about uh, whether, how to recognize where you need to be, and perhaps uh, uh, as your uh, problems become more complicated, how to uh, migrate or uh, proceed up the ontology spectrum. So, um, if your problem, for example, uh, is fairly local, you're developing a, 
a database or your own personal collection of uh, uh, documents, you're probably and your and your requirement for semantic expressivity is low, meaning uh, you know, uh, in for your taxonomy, uh, you can view these as topic uh, nodes and. Uh, they're just areas that you want to put your documents. They're little uh, bins that you want to put your documents in. So it's a loose semantic characterization <coughs> where you don't really need a complicated or very well-structured semantic model. You're probably in that taxonomy area. If you need m much more, so you want a, an application, let's say, for search and um, ret information retrieval, <coughs> you may want to be using a thesaurus because your problem is a little more general. Um, it's not just your document set, but maybe all document sets on the Internet uh, or in your uh, enterprise. And uh, your semantic expressivity requirements are medium, um, uh, meaning you don't need a whole lot, but you need more than taxonomy furnished. Then you're probably in that thesaurus area. Uh, it, as your problems become more general, so object-oriented community, enterprise architecture, uh, perhaps developing a model for your database, a uh, more conceptual model, uh, and your semantic expressivity requirements are, are fairly high, um, you need to distinguish maybe uh, relations and attributes, um, maybe cardinality, uh, in addition to the classes and instances, you're probably in that conceptual model area. Uh, as you go up, though, your problems are very general, right? You want to represent things about the world and how the world operates in certain domains or uh, certain domains are structured. Uh, and you, your expressivity requirements are very uh, high. In other words, you want uh, axioms to uh, uh, characterize the meaning uh, of your entities, your relations. Uh, you want uh, so-called rules um, uh, or uh, proof structures. Uh, and you, you want to do uh, perhaps automated inference. You're probably in that area called the logical theory area. Uh, so with that background, let's jump ahead to uh, slide 28. Uh, and uh, as you'll recall, we actually covered a couple of these slides, but uh, I just want to uh, repeat myself to familiarize uh, you with where we are. So we, we talked about taxonomy, strong and weak thesaurus, uh, distinguished some of these uh, uh, primary uh, notions like uh, term versus concept, uh, syntax, semantics, pragmatics, uh, extension, intention, very informally, but to give you some background. Uh, and then we uh, tackled uh, conceptual models, and now we started on logical theories, uh, which we characterize as strong ontology. So uh, this slide, uh, we... we, we uh, typically, these so-called strong ontologies, uh, one was, ones we're very interested in, come in maybe two flavors that sometimes are interchangeable. Uh, a frame-based uh, representation, or uh, as, you, as we call it, an axiomatic ontology, where the frame-based is really more focused on a node and link structure, 
uh, in languages which kind of hide the logical expressions that really exist underneath or could uh, be expressed in terms of. Uh, it's more entity-centric, so uh, it's more like object-oriented modeling where uh, the entity might be a class person and you drape the properties and relations around the entity uh, as opposed to uh, uh, what we'll see as an axiomatic representation where it might be distributed. So um, the frame-based representation really focuses on that entity class and uh, in some examples typically visualizations will be like this. Uh, so uh, if folks have used Protege or uh, some of the semantic web owl, uh, owl tools, um, RDF, etc., cetera, um, or even UML, that's the style uh, that's visually expressed uh, for these uh, frame-based ontologies. Uh, so in Protege, you'll see this hierarchic structure of classes and relations could have multiple parents, um, uh, but your, the focus is on that entity um, uh, as opposed to a logical expression that involves uh, uh, elements, if you will, from that entity class. Uh, now, the axiomatic uh, side, if you will, or style of uh, expressing a strong ontology, what we're calling a logical theory here, um, uh, is uh, where you express the logical information about the ontology in a logical language, which so it looks like axioms and rules um, that really expose the logical expressions. So it's not really entity-centric. Uh, so the, ad, the axioms and rules will uh, refer to entities like classes, their instances, the same kinds of things uh, that uh, are talked about and represented in frame-based ontologies, uh, but they'll be expressed in rules, and they could be distributed. Um, so a file uh, that you may have a file of uh, axioms and rules that um, uh, in expressed in the logical language, and uh, uh, you can make assertions, if you will, about uh, those entities anywhere in that file or if you have multiple files, could be distributed across, across multiple files. Now, uh, um, uh, ultimately, um, there, uh, the, these two uh, views or perspectives or kinds of um, strong ontologies, logical theories, are interchangeable because a frame base can be expressed in terms of uh, axioms uh, and axiomatic uh, ontology, and we give uh, in, in some of the uh, slides that follow, we'll give you kind of some examples of how that could look. Uh, the next slide was uh, slide 29, where uh, I'm leaning on a uh, old slide from uh, Niccolo uh, Guarino, uh, which tries to characterize contributions that ontologies make. Um, and uh, recall what we talked about was uh, when you want to construct an ontology, right, you, as a human being, you have a certain conceptualization of the world or a part of the world, a domain. Uh, this is my idea of uh, medicine, or this is the way I conceive of uh, the uh, parts of the world in ter terms of, you know, uh, military intelligence or 
chemical engineering. Uh, to express that, to create a model, right, you use a language, the modeling language or knowledge representation language. That language itself, uh, if you will, licenses a set of formal models. Uh, we're characterizing here at the M. So the formal models are basically the, uh, the pro if you will, the semantic properties of that language that you're using. And uh, given a certain language, certain models will be uh, possible, certain other models will not be possible. And what you'd like to do is, and this is where the, inter the, the circles come into play, uh, you're interested in uh, modeling so that you get the intended models um, expressed uh, about your conceptualization in your language, L. Um, typically, that's extremely hard to do, so uh, what we typically can do is try to approximate it, right? So uh, you see the outer circle is maybe the set of models that the language itself will license or permit. Um, we're after the inner circle of models, but we can't necessarily do anything except approximate that. And one way we do is to use an ontology to constrain the set of models. So the ontology here is, you know, forcing a, an approximation um, uh, of the models in this language that most closely um, uh, is your target, in some sense, for how you're conceiving the world. So, uh, Leo, this is uh, yeah. Michael Grinniger. Um, so are you uh, then talking about the models of the ontology at that point? Uh, the models of the ontology, but also the models of the language, right? That's, uh, so, uh, so well, there will be certain things that uh, formally are uh, uh, expressible within the language, depending on the language. Right, but uh, so like um, Mike Ashold and I had, this, had the notion of a verified ontology, um, which was the property that the intended models of your concepts are equivalent to the actual models of your ontology. Right, so your ontology, if it's a set of axioms, will have a set of models. And the, what you're doing when you are building a, a verified ontology, which would be even stronger than uh, regular ontology, you would actually be able to guarantee that, that all the models of your axioms correspond are, are equivalent to the intended models you had for the original concepts. Yeah, yeah, so I guess that would require a, another circle, right? That seems to be a stronger requirement. Right, so that's what I was just wondering there. Okay, so be, you'd have another circle, which would be the intended models of uh, the ontology, not just the intended. So I'm just wondering, when you say the intended, when you're using Nicole's diagram here, are you referring to the intended models of the ontology's concepts, or? The, the more uh, the intended models, uh, let's say, of the, uh, of the conceptualization as expressed in that language. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so... Uh, you could, I think, add a fourth circle there that would probably be, you know, uh, uh, probably intermediate, right, uh, between uh, the ontology circle uh, and the uh, intended models of the conceptualization. Well, uh, uh, Ms. Pat, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't if, if your ontology is really good, wouldn't it just mean the yellow, uh, the yellow ring is very small, only slightly bigger than the purple ring? Uh, well, yeah, remember, what we're after is kind of the intended model right. uh, so, so of the, the intercircle, right? So good to get close to the purple ring. Yeah. Right, so and to verify, see, to me, like a verified one meant that there'd be no yellow. 
The sure. purple yeah, yeah. with perfect would be, would be perfect yellow. ontology. It'd be yeah. yellow. Okay. Well, we call it verified, not perfect. But verified. Verified. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would say that you know, so it's a slippery, a little bit slippery there between the intended models, because uh, if you can't right, you how do you how do you uh, how do you formalize or or conceptualize or express the intended models uh, without some formalization, right? Leo, I forgot to ask you, do you want to take questions now or do you want to uh, uh, do them after? It, it doesn't matter. I, I, as long as we don't get, you know, too far afield, I think it's fine to interleave. Uh, yeah, we, I, I'll, we can table this till the end of the talk. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but, but, I, but I think I agree, and uh, I, I think there's either a fourth uh, circle, uh, because I would say that there, there has to be a fourth circle, but it's, it's probably closer to... Um, you know, between the inner circle and the second circle. Okay. Uh, and then, then the next slide, which is slide uh, 30, uh, it, it's really kind of more complicated because uh, ultimately we can we can have multiple conceptualizations of the world, right? Uh, given perspectives, and this this perspective is uh, electronic commerce or e-business. Uh, and and so you you might be t conceiving of portions of the same world, but you have different uh, perspectives or different conceptions, right? So if you're a buyer or seller, for example, um, uh, versus uh, uh, different kinds of buyers, a technical buyer or non-technical buyer, uh, the way you conceive of the really the same uh, aspects or the same portion of the world will be different. And so you... Uh, it's it's uh, it's kind of uh, you're after hopefully this an intersecting model right because if there is no intersecting model it means you can't uh, communicate and transact business and if you want on, one ontology right that ontology has to uh, either uh, expand to include uh, formalizations of what those individual conceptualizations intend or it's not going to work. Uh, the next slide was 31, and we just wanted to roughly characterize uh, axioms, inference rules, theorems, and theory. And this is a very simple uh, uh, pictorial representation where uh, we have axioms, if you will, at the center, and those are the things that uh, you want to characterize as, uh, you know, that the core elements uh, um, expressed let's say, within your ontology, um, uh, that's to be uh, true in some sense. And, uh, and then um, uh, theorems, um, which uh, we, we characterize loosely as a, a, a kind of query you might want to ask of your system. Um, uh, in other words, is this, is this uh, expression true with respect to the axioms and the kinds of inference rules you're allowed to use, and that will vary. So uh, we, we mentioned <coughs> some rules like uh, uh, modus ponens, for example, um, given, uh, you know, uh, given some P and the rule or implication, if P then Q, you, it licenses the conclusion uh, of Q, right? So in that notion, that uh, modus ponens is an inference rule 
you can use for uh, proofs uh, using the language, if you will, uh, the logical language um, that's uh, expressed uh, and the content expressed in terms of your axioms in that language. <coughs> uh, and then once, uh, so, so uh, given queries or theorems that are proven true, for example, you can view a theory as uh, the set of uh, potentially ever-expanding proven, proven true theorems along with the axioms uh, and as licensed by the inference rules as the, uh, uh, as the rough theory, uh, in which case this characterizes what we mean by uh, and why we use the term logical theory. Again, uh, this is a simplification, uh, and one simplification, of course, is that an inference rule uh, actually could be expressed uh, in the logic itself, so it falls out perhaps more as an axiom. Um, uh, but that's a, a another uh, kind of uh, direction we probably don't want to go now. Um, and then uh, slide 32 is just uh, a rough characterization um, uh, with some examples of what these um, different axioms, inference rules, and theorems might be, right? So. In our case, we're characterizing uh, uh, the assertion that thing is a class as a given axiom, uh, in a sense, for our ontology. Uh, and uh, other things that perhaps might be uh, expressed, such as subclass relations, uh, maybe even transitivity of subclass, uh, etc., as axioms um, that would be expressed in terms of uh, the base ontology. Uh, and then inference rules such as uh, uh, modus ponens at the bottom uh, that we mentioned, but other kinds of rules, and these are just very simple examples that the reasoning engine would use uh, uh, to uh, go from, uh, to, to be able to prove a theorem uh, or, if you will, a query in that sense. And then theorems, right? Uh, some theorems are theorems, if you will, of the logic itself, right? So if P and Q are true, then so is P or Q. Um, and most logics will uh, uh, allow that, uh, but not necessarily all logics, uh, all the ones that I know of, but uh, it's not to say that there aren't other logics. Uh, and then theorems more expressed in terms of the domain, so, you know, if John Smith is an instance of person, then it's not the case that uh, John Smith is, is his own parent. Uh, and that could be proved uh, uh, depending on the inference rules and the axioms. Again, a very simple characterization. <coughs> uh, the next slide is 33, uh, where we talk about ontology representation levels. And the, the same thing really applies to uh, conceptual models, uh, but we'll just focus on uh, really ontologies, <coughs> the higher end ontologies. Um, the top level is the knowledge representation language. So this might be the language, uh, this might be UML, could be OWL. Uh, it could be, in some sense, um, first order logic, if you will, if you characterize that as the language you're going to express your content in. 
Uh, it could be common logic. Uh, uh, it could be KIF, uh, et cetera, RDF. Uh, below that, we have the ontology concept level. And again, our um, caveat, if you will, about concept is that uh, some, some, some folks have heartburn with that uh, term. But we'll characterize this as the generic expression level. So um, this is where typically you uh, do your modeling of, uh, of the ontology. You're in, interested when you construct an ontology probably of modeling domain concepts such as person, location, event, uh, parent, hammer, etc. Uh, to do that, of course, you use the constructs of the knowledge representation language, which is defined above you um, in that knowledge representation language layer. Uh, some, most languages, in fact, uh, will fix what that is. So uh, think of UML, which you may be more familiar with. You might be able to define class and association and certain other instance and certain other constructs. Uh, you, you typically build your object model at that middle layer, so you build a model that talks about person, location, classes. Um, but you'll use that, the, the class uh, definition and semantics comes from the language above. Now the lowest level is the instance level, and this is the instances of classes defined at the middle level. So a specific Harry X. Lansford III person instance, um, uh, a, uh, an arbitrary anonymous person 560234, which is an instance of person, uh, a specific transaction, uh, even a specific, uh, uh, if you will, uh, type of Ford uh, of an automobile, uh, given it could be, in, in fact, enriched enriched down to uh, the, the vehicle identification number, which acts as kind of an object identifier for a car. Um, so, and we talk, uh, we talk about, um, they're, they're really, they're, uh, in some sense, there are two uh, relations here, meta level to object level relation, right, expressed kind of twice. So the language is kind of the meta level for the object level things that you express. And then the object level is kind of like the meta level to the object level of the instance instances uh, instance expressions that you uh, express. Uh, and so over on the right is, again, uh, language, ontology, and knowledge base, if you will. And sometimes uh, in philosophical literature, of course, uh, the uh, distinction between ontology general and particular, ontology and knowledge base general and particular, uh, might be uh, in terms of universals and particulars. Uh, the next slide is slide 34, and again, this is just a uh, another example uh, from e-commerce uh, expressed in English. But uh, in an ontology uh, representation, of course, it would be expressed in a logical language. So, uh, you know, the uh, classes, uh, this, this came from a, uh, a true, uh, inst a true uh, example, set of examples we had 
uh, at Vertical Net, an electronic uh, e-business company, business to business, a few years ago. So metal working machinery, uh, equipment and supplies, uh, uh, metal cutting machinery might be your classes. Instances may be things such as the specific OKK, KCV, uh, etc. Vertical spindle direction, blah blah blah. This this is characterizing one type of machine, which is a instance of a metal cutting machinery, and uh, <coughs> and really uh, you could tack on to that like a, a single unique object identifier, meaning this specific one of that type. Uh, then relations, uh, kind of, or is a, or subclass, but also part of. So uh, kind of metal working machinery is metal cutting machinery. We could also characterize that as just a subclass of metal working machinery is metal cutting machinery. Yeah. Uh, excuse me one second. <coughs> Um, uh, properties might be, uh, again, properties, uh, relations, and attributes. Um, sometimes they're a, a, a little bit uh, uh, squishy on how you characterize those. So philosophically, uh, we'll make distinctions between uh, properties, if you will, and attributes and relations, but uh, in a lot of ontological engineering, uh, the tools themselves and the languages may uh, characterize one or the other, but uh, we know that a geometry, for example, could be expressed as an attribute in some ontology language, uh, as a property in another, uh, uh, or as a really, um, uh, if you will, a relationship between things. Um, uh, think of father... Uh, uh, the father relation between two persons, right? Sometimes that's expressed of as uh, given an instance of a person uh, as uh, an attribute called father of. So Harry is the father of John. Uh, so uh, we, we, we try to uh, simplify that here and just call certain things we usually characterize as attributes properties. Uh, but also values, right? So potential value ranges. In this case, uh, these are simple data types, uh, strings, uh, integers, but they're constrained. Uh, so uh, for a specific milling insert, for example, uh, it may be constrained to uh, some combination such as 85-degree uh, diamond. Uh, which is a, only a, uh, a one possible value uh, that that, uh, if you will, uh, combination property uh, ranges over for a milling insert. And then we have rules, uh, and we'll loosely characterize these as constraints and axioms. Uh, we, we, we don't want to get into a definition of rule here. Um, it could be made elsewhere, and we could do that, but I don't want to take us there. Uh, and this is more looking at uh, a rule as kind of an implication. Uh, but the typical rule, as uh, we see, is really uh, kind of a proof rule, <coughs> more like a, a modus ponens. Uh, but in this case, uh, if a milling insert 
uh, X and operation Y and material uh, Z is equal to uh, the value of the Z material is a high-grade steel. Uh, and the, uh, uh, that specific X insert um, performs operation X um, on uh, high-grade steel, then X has to have a geometry of 85-degree diamond. So this is one of the rules that we might express in ontology uh, that deals with uh, metalworking machinery. Uh, slide 35 uh, is just um, uh, a, a point to underscore that uh, sometimes we can express uh, uh, our ontology or uh, as a language, if you will, in terms of a language or in terms of a visualization such as a graphical representation. Uh, so the point is here that um, these could be interchangeable. So the, uh, the, we have a graphical view, a one graphical view of uh, uh, what might be uh, represented in, let's say, Sorry, a, huh? uh, might, might be represented uh, specifically in a particular visualization uh, that an ontology tool uses. Uh, it's contrived here, obviously, but um, and then the textual represent, representation over on the right. And this was a, an old uh, psych uh, expression in, in their meld language. So uh, what we'd like to say is that, in fact, those are equivalent, right? And uh, it's, it's, the important point here is not to uh, say that, oh, well, we want to do this in a visualization uh, versus, oh, we want to do it in a uh, language uh, uh, style in text. But what's important really, uh, these are interchangeable. What's important is the logic behind these. So the logic has to be right. It doesn't matter how it's presented. Uh, the next slide, again, is a very simplified um, uh, representation of ontology levels. Now we're on slide 36. Um, just at um, the class level, if you will, the, the, the ontology or generic level, the middle level in that uh, representation, uh, level of representation picture we just saw uh, a few bits ago. Um, so we might say that uh, upper ontologies uh, are typically focused at the top because they're, they represent generic common knowledge. You might have things such as, uh, at the very top level, uh, uh, notions about what constitutes a part of something. What's an identity? What, how do you determine identity of the things below? Um, uh, especially with respect to uh, time. Are there time-changing um, uh, relationships? Um, uh, a little below that, possibly uh, in the uh, lower upper ontology, might be things like products, processes, uh, organization. I would say processes, locations. Right? What do you What do you mean by a process, and what do you mean by a location? That's probably clearly in an upper ontology because it applies to everything, or nearly everything in the entire world. Um, below that, we call middle level, uh, which might be these are the uh, constructs uh, that you uh, define uh, and 
characterize multiple lower domain models, right? So when we focus on domain model uh, in 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 the metal uh, in the metal uh, in machine working uh, ontology, you may have metal parts. Um, in a different ontology, you may have art supplies, right? But in both of those uh, domain ontologies, right, products and services at a higher level may characterize what they are. Uh, this is from a, here a perspective of electronic commerce, but the, the point is more general. So, and there could be, in fact, a subdomain ontology. So, you may have an ontology, very small ontology, subdomain about washers or fasteners. Um, so, this is roughly trying to characterize the levels of ontologies we deal with. And, of course, um, it's sometimes uh, controversial. Uh, we like to say, well, you could have multiple domain models even on the same domain. Uh, and that's, of course, the case today. You may have multiple middle, uh, rough middle ontologies um, that characterize the same areas. And, again, that's what we have today. And you might even say there could be multiple upper ontologies or parts of upper ontologies that characterize everything that you want to model. And, again, that's what we have today. So it's not to say that we have just one or many of any of these at any level. Uh, typically, today, we have multiple ones. Now, the upper ontologies, there's probably fewer of those. And, of course, uh, there's the ONTAC and COSMO um, effort, if you will, in particular COSMO effort, which is trying to uh, address uh, and maybe an intersection of current upper ontologies. Um, the next slide now just tries to unpack some of the things you might talk about when you talk about an upper ontology. So it, this is a uh, this is from a larger slide set uh, we did uh, in MITRE. We did a, an evaluation of upper ontologies that existed um, last year, 2000, well, 2004. Uh, and uh, I, I posted the, uh, this report uh, or a URL to this report to the ONTAC group uh, a few while back. Um, uh, some of the ontological distinctions an upper ontology might make, for example, so ways of characterizing initially what the upper ontology is trying to do and be about. So uh, we might say that uh, one is uh, given to uh, upper ontologies, one might be uh, descriptive and one might be revisionary. And uh, uh, this just means that that's the kind of ontological stance that the uh, persons who developed the upper ontology kind of took uh, as to what kind of uh, ontological engineering product this was going to be or is. So revisionary is roughly that uh, uh, we characterize it as every model or concept, um, every model construct is a temporal object. So everything necessarily in the, on any of the ontologies that uh, are written below um, will have at the middle level and domain level any construct has temporal properties versus a descriptive uh, which you might say is that no um, you could model certain things 
um, and maybe many things that are not necessarily temporal objects. Um, so uh, it, it may mean, you know, we don't have an example of this, but you might think of something like uh, uh, maybe an abstract node uh, in particular. It might be easier to uh, get your mind around. Um, uh, you know, hope. Does hope uh, have uh, necessarily time-bound? Well, uh, we can talk about it. Um, a second kind is multiplicative versus reductionist. So this is kind of how you characterize the kinds and number of concepts you want to be modeled. So we, so remember, we're making these upper ontological distinctions. Uh, you might have an, an upper ontology that says, "Oh, I'm, I want to be multiplicative." In other words, any concept can be included that reality seems to require, or any useful distinction that you'd like to make uh, can be a construct. Versus a reductionist, uh, which might mean that no, you really want to reduce to the fewest number of things, uh, fewest number of constructs or primitives, from which it's possible to generate uh, more complex reality. Uh, so uh, now we're on slide uh, 38. Uh, other distinctions you might make within your upper ontology you may distinguish between universal and particular, right? Uh, in particular, uh, this means the kinds of entities that ontologies address. So uh, loosely characterizes the universe of discourse or discourses of the ontology. So universals, generic entities, which can have instances and classes, uh, and particulars, which might be specific entities, which are instances and can have no instances themselves. Now, it also, um, uh, it's a little bit squishy because some folks will say that, well, uh, you can actually have universals and particulars in your same ontology, which means that maybe you would like to quantify over universals, too. Um, we're not characterizing that here. Uh, we're using, uh, let's say, a, uh, a, a weaker or simpler notion that more corresponds to a, uh, a generic thing like a class, for example, uh, versus, so, so, so the distinction here is, right, it's very, it's still, it's, it's, it's rather loose, again, uh, but it's a distinction between universals and particulars, uh, which we can loosely characterize as class and instance. Um, you may make a distinction between continuant and occurrent, right? Where a continuant, uh, and these are just uh, simple definitions I pulled from, uh, for example, John Soa's uh, 2000 Knowledge Representation uh, book, uh, where an entity uh, that has uh, identity uh, that continues to be recognized over uh, an interval of time. Right, so so the the uh, if you will the uh, the simple example is something like um, uh, our usual notion of what a person is. Um, so the person John Smith, um, uh, we characterize as uh, maintaining uh, his identity over time, and we can recognize that as being John Smith. Uh, even though uh, John at one time had short hair, long hair, 
became bald, um, uh, it went from a child to an adolescent to an adult to an old man. Uh, maybe every atom uh, in John's uh, body has been completely replaced a number of times. But there's still a notion that um, John Smith, uh, as a, an entity, uh, has a continuing identity through time. And a current is something that does not necessarily have a, sti a, a stable uh, identity during any interval of time. So we try to characterize uh, uh, between a continuant and a current. And other, uh, other distinguishing points that um, kind of uh, confuse us a bit sometimes is that there also may be a notion of a three-dimensional uh, versus a four-dimensional object, right? So in your upper ontology, you may want to make it a three-dimensional, uh, uh, say that everything is three-dimensional. Uh, which is meaning that everything uh, passes, has three dimensions of uh, space that pass through time. Uh, so, uh, so we consider it a three-dimensional object, uh, and that three-dimensional object passes through time. Now, the four-dimensional view is r roughly that, no, you, you have truly four dimensions. So, um, you don't really talk about a three-dimensional object passing through time, but this four-dimensional object, period. So it's more like uh, uh, characterizing a person then as kind of a uh, cylinder through space-time uh, or a, a worm-shaped uh, worm object through space-time that uh, contracts and expands, but uh, viewed as a uh, more like a uh, not a series of snapshots um, uh, with uh, where the snapshots have a time time stamp, but as an object uh, uh, that it's really a four-dimensional object uh, with certain properties. Uh, perhaps uh, some some make a distinction between uh, let's say a thin object and thick object, right? Where the thick object is uh, the well, the thin object is the identity uh, and, and necessary properties, identity preserving and necessary properties of that uh, four-dimensional object, uh, like a person. Uh, and the thick object is just the, uh, if you will, the outer part of that uh, worm-like shape um, that has the uh, temporary or non-necessary uh, property uh, uh, properties that it has, uh, what we would characterize three-dimensionally as at different times. But just one thing, um, I think some people who use the term perturbant might not say that all perturbants are objects. Uh, uh, right, right. So it, again, this is where we get there's some interaction between a current and a continuum and a current and 3D and 4D. So a perturbant. Uh, uh, so, so I have in parentheses as a perturbant. A perturbant also might mean something like, um, uh, you know, something that perdures as opposed to uh, something that uh, uh, endures, right? So you might want to characterize, uh, let's say, a process perhaps uh, more in terms of a perturbant because it uh, represents uh, a more complicated uh, uh, activity if, or 
well, process that uh, by definition has uh, a, a easily ascertainable temporal parts, right? So uh, you might think of uh, uh, painting a house, right, uh, as more of a pertinent than the house itself, which you might view as an endurance. Um, uh, slide 39, now, uh, uh, additional, <coughs> and again, this is very uh, simplified because upper ontologies can make other distinctions, but we wanted to characterize at least some of the distinctions various upper ontologies might make. So, uh, part-whole relation, right? Sometimes uh, we call that part of uh, UML. Uh, we might characterize it as a has, which means a type of part of. Um, in upper ontologies, you might axiomatize these differently. So you might have uh, a purely what we call a muriological uh, set of axioms, which means that uh, you're only focusing on parts, uh, purely part of uh, uh, constituency, what a proper part is, what a part is with respect to what a, uh, what a proper part is, uh, can can a in your set of axioms does a does a given object contain itself or not uh, as a part? Um, you can also express it, uh, uh, aspects of it topologically, which just means uh, the things that the connectedness between objects, right? So uh, we think of uh, think of a human being, uh, the body of a human being. You might say that uh, your hand is part of your arm, uh, and if you view that, you could maybe uh, characterize that uh, just as in terms of a part of uh, muriologically, but you might also want to stipulate that one of the strong things you mean is that it's, it's, it's connected, physically or some other way connected to the rest of your arm. So a lot of uh, modern... Um, Upper ontologies typically will uh, express as a, as a combination called Muriel topology, so that the um, analysis of part of really says that the relation requires both the notion of that part and the notion of being connected. Uh, and semantically, that's what you need to express the true thing or true notion of what uh, uh, the typical part of relation is. Uh, in an ontology. Okay, slide 40 now uh, just tries to uh, summarize kind of in a different form more graphically and it might be more confusing of uh, the, way, uh, the way what we've covered with respect to the ontology spectrum and these uh, semant very semantic models. So, uh, again, we've talked about this uh, 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 when we talk about scope, for example, so these are new notions coming into play here a little bit. Uh, the new notions are uh, the, uh, the KR construct, which we might view that as the uh, type of model in, uh, in, the, uh, in the ontology spectrum that we looked at, so taxonomy, thesaurus, conceptual model, uh, logical theory, if you will. Uh, and uh, the, the scope being... Uh, whether uh, it's uh, focused on, uh, let's say, a, uh, a term 
right? The thesaurus is basically being focused on terms uh, as opposed to uh, a taxonomy, uh, well, as opposed to a, a weak taxon, as opposed to taxonomies, ontologies, conceptual models, um, which typically are focused on concepts. So an ontology definitely is focused on a concept. And uh, uh, a uh, conceptual model is, uh, is definitely, uh, as, a, as a weak ontology, and a logical theory is a strong ontology. So if you look down below uh, just the ontology mo node, it's pointing to concept. Now, we also characterize uh, taxonomy uh, uh, as potentially being a term or a, a concept-based uh, 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 and so I, I really have the taxonomy node pointing to uh, the scope, which you can view as a disjunction of term and concept. Uh, uh, and then the, uh, in red, the relations like is subclassification of uh, narrower than subclass, disjoint subclass with transitivity that we introduced on the ontology spectrum as pointing at the way the parent-child relation is characterized with respect to these different models. Uh, and then the processing, which we mentioned, was uh, that when you become, when you're in the logical theory realm, for example, uh, you have a logic behind your uh, knowledge representation language. Therefore, uh, the machine can perform automated inference, which makes it machine interpretable. And we mean that by, by that machine semantically interpretable. So the machine, without understanding, can do a lot more. It can perform automated inference as though uh, with comparable inferences a human might make with the same knowledge, uh, as opposed to uh, just machine-readable or machine-processable. Right? Uh, you can view XML, for example, as machine-readable. Um, uh, uh, machine-processable, well, you might view uh, something like um, uh, UML, for example, as being machine processable, if you have an application such as Rational Rose or another UML modeler, uh, you may be able to uh, partially generate uh, some program code based upon your model. So it's more of a machine processable, not just readable, but you can do something with it, but you can't yet Inter do interpretation of the semantics with it. Uh, so that's kind of, a, again, a, a summary. Uh, the next slide is just, you know, what do we want the conclusion, which is what do we want the future to be? And it's just uh, trying to give a potential for uh, at least one vision of the future where, you know, eventually where everything is in our information technology is model-driven, right, where... You have models of the world, ontological models that on the top, and maybe you have knowledge and belief models below that, and below those application models, presentation models, target platform models, and ultimately executable code derived from those models. Uh, requiring, of course, the stuff on the right. Not just the models, but infrastructure that supports the transformation between these models or linkages between these models, uh, or sometimes you might view that as uh, uh, compilations from one model to another. 
Uh, I say at the end, but it's actually followed by slide 42, questions, but uh, we, we have a few minutes, so I'd like to just get into, uh, again, very briefly, slide 43, which is uh, a work and effort right now, uh, and there's, there's actually, I have a larger slide set on a lot of this, but it's trying to characterize uh, the logic spectrum, which I'll uh, say is a portion of the ontology spectrum. So if we're working in the area roughly in the conceptual model to logical theory level, uh, and, and it's really tilted more on the logical theory because uh, that's where the uh, uh, languages uh, really are expressed in terms of logic. Um, uh, what I want to do is expand that to show some of the expressivity there. So uh, 43, uh, we move on to 44, which represents that expansion. Where, and, and this is obviously... Uh, uh, you know, just the characterization that uh, is known about logics in general, and it doesn't have everything in here. Uh, for example, there might be uh, something we might call uh, first-order monadic logic, uh, or so we, we don't we don't want to go into everything. Um, but what we start uh, with this slide, we start saying is that. Uh, again, it's less expressive in the lower left to more expressive in the upper right. So the kinds of logics here are inc increasing in terms of increasing expressiveness. Uh, from uh, typically the, the base kind of logic, propositional logic, uh, at the lower left, uh, up through modal, uh, modal pro you know, modal extension or modal propositional logic. Uh, description logics, logic programming uh, from uh, usually characterized uh, more abstractly as horn clauses uh, in, let's say, a prologue logic programming language, but there could be other logic programming languages, uh, up to uh, first-order logic, sometimes called predicate logic or predicate calculus, uh, to the uh, Extension, the modal extension of that, sometimes called um, uh, modal predicate logic or quantified modal logic, uh, to second-order logic, and in fact to uh, arbitrarily higher-order logic. So uh, there could be a third order, fourth order, or just a higher order uh, to express that you can go uh, kind of arbitrarily high. Uh, so. It means that the what you can express in these uh, logics at each of these levels, so these are really like logic types, um, uh, become more and more. They become more and more expressive, so you can express more and more. Uh, when you're talking about the propositional logic level, right uh, down lower left, all you can talk about really are propositions and uh, using uh, logical connectives, right? So. Something is either true or false, and everything uh, is an either a proposition or a connective. So a proposition would be something like, it is raining outside uh, now, or just, it is rain raining outside. But a proposition is also any other kind of sentence like that, like, um, John's father is hairy. 
proposition. It's either true or false. Uh, and uh, it may or may not be ascertainable whether it's true or whether it's false. Um, uh, the current president of the United States is Bill Clinton. Uh, that's a proposition. Uh, and if uh, you uh, gauge the truth value of that with respect to the real world, we know that it's false. Uh, but propositions, you know, such as that, uh, you can't get inside that, right? So the whole sentence there, it's either it's either true or false, but you really, uh, within the logic, uh, propositional logic, you can't get inside and pull out things like person or president or uh, now or whether uh, uh, or the relationship, you know, being the current president or being reigning um, because everything is a proposition. Now, you can combine propositions with the connectives, right? So uh, uh, the current president of the United States is Bill Clinton and uh, John is the father of Harry. Uh, if you know whether, in tr if you if you gauge the truth of that with respect to the real world, and you know who John and Harry are, you might say that uh, uh, the first part is false. Uh, Bill Clinton is not the current president. So, by definition of the and connective, uh, you don't even have to check the truth value of uh, John. Uh, John being the pre being the father of Harry, because by definition of what that conjunction that uh, and sign means, it, it says that um, the and to be true, both prepositions uh, uh, and, and it's a binary and, so it's x and y, both have to be true for the whole thing to be true. So some of the if you will, semantics of propositional logic. You, you have the semantics of the connectives. What you mean by ands and ors or implication, the, the one arrow, the one-sided arrow versus the two-sided uh, biconditional arrow or the negation sign. Uh, and then you judge the uh, truth value of complex uh, propositions, which just means propositions that are connected via these connectives. Um, in terms of uh, the connectives, but also the truth value of the proposition. But for ontology purposes, right, uh, we, we want to really, uh, and for many modeling, other modeling purposes, we want to get into much deeper level granularity. Um, the one extension modal propositional logic, right, it says, okay, uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, just propositions, but we want kinds of what we call modes, right? We want to say it's necessarily true that this proposition uh, uh, holds, or it's uh, possibly true that this proposition holds, as opposed to just saying it's true or false, right? Uh, so you, you interject or you create two new uh, modal operators, uh, necessity in one case and, uh, and Typically, the pairs go together, necessity and uh, possibility, and you define one in terms of the other. It just gives you an additional, uh, 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 you know, uh, increase in expressivity 
when you're talking about propositions. Um, but again, it's, a, it's just a limited uh, uh, extension. When you go to uh, this, uh, I, what I want to do is just jump to first order logic. First order logic will introduce, uh, it has the same things, it has propositions, uh, it has uh, logical connectives. Uh, so uh, over on the right in red, if you see the curled uh, arrow, it's pointing at what uh, first order logic the constructs are. And so it brings in everything that propositional PL logic uh, had, propositions and connectives, but it also introduces predicates and functions and individuals, what we call individuals which are, are approximate uh, what we mean by instances, for example. Uh, but also quantifiers, uh, and the upside down A is the universal and the backward E here is the existential, meaning all or some, respectively. These are quantifiers over individuals, right? So you'll see an expression in first order logic, uh, something like, uh, you know, P in parentheses of X. Uh, P uh, parentheses X close parentheses. And what we'll say is that that is a predicate that uh, uh, requires uh, an X argument, where we're not even specifying what X is here. But X, uh, all instances of X will be individuals, if you will, uh, because this is first order. So the, the predicate might be father uh, and uh, uh, probably father um, actually might be a two-place predicate where uh, father x, comma, y, uh, where we interpret that as being the first individual will be the father to the second individual. X will be the father of the, of the second individual y. So we could also put quantifiers into that, right? So we we'll say, well, there is, exists the backward E, some, uh, some uh, X, um, uh, and uh, some Y, such that uh, X is the father of Y, uh, uh, which might mean uh, that we're, we're expressing that everyone uh, ultimately, uh, f to satisfy the father relationship, you need to have a, uh, uh, this, the, an individual that fills both of different individuals uh, that fill both of those arguments. Uh, but of course, that doesn't necessarily state that just yet. So what we're saying here is that now we can, in a sentence like uh, Bill Clinton is the uh, current president of the United States, we can zoom in on Bill Clinton, right? Uh, maybe the, the Maybe we'd focus on him as a uh, as a type of person, right? An individual who is a person, an instance of person, uh, and uh, we could say uh, current. Well, we could say president of the United States, which might be a specific uh, uh, property that uh, a person has, and a current uh, president of the United States might be a, a subset of the potential range of uh, presidents of the United States and, and is, of course, whatever uh, is means, you know, it depends on what is is, uh, an old joke, but uh, 
but it means that now in uh, when you're expressing what you need to express in your logic, you have many more kinds of things you can express. You can express things like uh, predicates and uh, individuals, persons, and uh, current presidents of the United States, and uh, uh, instances or individuals like uh, Bill Clinton or Harry and uh, John. So it's more expressive. Uh, uh, there's, uh, you can also express, uh, in terms of quantification, uh, the what things have to hold or uh, must, must things that hold uh, or conditions on uh, their holding. So there is some object, uh, or there's, uh, or all objects have uh, a certain property, uh, or some pro uh, objects have a certain property. Um, when you get to, uh, so we like that expressivity, right? We, uh, in, in typically when you're, you're doing uh, ontology modeling, right, in most of all, most all of our languages are uh, either first order um, or below that. Uh, because first order logic gives you uh, a lot of what you need when you want to uh, develop a, uh, expressions in, uh, in your ontology. Um, Below that, now we'll jump back a little bit. So uh, let me give you an example of uh, roughly a first order, a language that's uh, 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 got the power of first order logic. It might be something like common logic or KIF. Uh, it's not going to be logics like OWL, a semantic web language, or RDF. Uh, it's not going to be a language um, that's, uh, uh, you know, even simpler than perhaps RDF, which is closer to a more propositional language. Uh, and we have, uh, there's, there's a number of those. I won't go into uh, some of the languages which are, have the power of propositional logic. Um, why might you want to have if, uh, something that's less expressive than first-order logic uh, when, when we think that we can probably express everything we need in ontology in terms of it. So uh, description logics in AI, for example, uh, so that's below. It's in between propositional first-order logic. Uh, they were created uh, basically because we know that first-order logic, though expressive, it has certain properties that um, affect our computational use of it. Um, it's got uh, a certain formal property called uh, semi-decidability, uh, which is really, uh, if you want to view it, as kind of undecidability. So uh, formally what that means is <coughs> that if you have you have something expressed, a theorem expressed in uh, first-order logic, uh, uh, it, it may, you not, may not be able to prove it. Uh, so it might be undecidable as to whether it's true or false. So if you had a machine, uh, an inference engine, uh, for example, and, and typically that's what we mean by that, if you had an inference engine, it could, uh, uh, in, the, in the limit, uh, it could have no limit. So in the limit, given uh, uh, axioms and, and uh, the knowledge uh, that uh, the theorem uh, is going to be proved with respect to using whatever inference rules you have in your logic, um, it could uh, spin forever and still never give you an answer. So um, we, we say it's semi-decidable because uh, 
in some cases, if, if that theorem, for example, is kind of really, uh, let's say we take God's eye view and say it's really true, um, eventually you'll be able to prove it. Um, but if it's in some objective fashion, if, we, if this was possible, we could say that it's false. The theorem really is false. Yeah, you could never prove uh, uh, that it was false. Um, so, uh, which means so that the positive forms are uh, are are decidable, but the the uh, negative forms are undecidable. But un semi-decidability itself is a very uh, is not a good property. And in fact, what you really want for an automated system is not just uh, decidability, because you know you don't want your theorem. Uh, you know, your query, uh, we're going to talk about a theorem, a theorem as a query. You don't want to submit your query and wait 100 years for an answer. What you'd like to do is be able to prove your theorem or return an answer to your query in real time and, and in, very, in fact, very fast real time for it to be useful. So if you have an inference engine, you want a fast inference engine. So. Description logics um, as a technical uh, thread in, uh, in AI began roughly mid-80s, uh, focusing on what's called tractable reasoning. In other words, uh, real uh, fast reasoning uh, for computational reasoning in reasonable time. And typically, the way they do that um, is to restrict the expressiveness of the logic. So uh, they don't use first-order logic. They know about, they like its expressivity, but they don't like the formal properties and the intractability of its uh, reasoning. So they say, well, let's let's limit it. So we're not going to have everything that a, a first-order logic has. So, uh, so there's many, there's been many description logics, uh, some of which uh, most of which preceded the web, um, uh, uh, but uh, some of which are uh, semantic web languages. So OWL is a type of description logic. Uh, so because the community that formed OWL was after tractable reasoning. Um, another community uh, in the uh, late 60s and uh, early 70s uh, formed uh, and uh, focusing on logic programming. So logic programming actually is probably more expressive than t description logics. Uh, typically, it's a again a uh, a restriction, a syntactic restriction, a first order logic. Uh, you can only have certain types of uh, rules, if you will, proof patterns, uh, and uh, these are expressed in terms of horn rules or horn. Clauses, uh, meaning uh, uh, that you you limit uh, how what you can express into a certain set of subpatterns of first order logic. They probably has the same formal power uh, of the first order logic, but it's just syntactically restricted so that there's a better formal computational properties associated with it. Um, Jumping ahead, uh, uh, just to characterize uh, things like uh, uh, you know modal predicate logic, right? 
we say that that's just an extension with those modal operators to first order logic. Second order logic, and uh, again, this is, uh, I'm going to cut it short, just give you the next slide, I'll show you some examples. Um, uh, second order logic says now, okay, not, you, you, maybe you want to quantify over not just uh, individuals or instances, but over predicates themselves, uh, and predicates, viewing predicates as kind of um, uh, a person, you know, person X uh, uh, would be a predicate where you would characterize a person as the class and X as the uh, instance or individual uh, uh, that is a member of that class. Well, what if you wanted to quantify over predicates like P or person? Um, you would have to go to a second order logic. Uh, and why might you want to? Uh, an example might be uh, in, in the government world and uh, that we're familiar with, uh, especially at MITRE sometimes, uh, you're interested uh, uh, when you're doing, uh, let's say, when you're trying to connect the dots, when you do uh, analyze intelligence. You may not care that a person is, uh, uh, is the father of another person or if a person works with another person uh, or a person uh, was, uh, went to school with another person, but you may want to find the relationships between persons no matter what those relationships are. And there could be many links to that relationship. Uh, so sometimes that's called, uh, in our world, uh, social networks or, or link analysis, but uh, think of it as the Kevin Bacon problem. Right, uh, uh, we. I think it's provable that everybody is uh, is uh, in some set of relationships uh, uh, that span six people to Kevin Bacon. You know, so Kevin Bacon starred in this movie with this other person. This person is the father or the wife of this other person. This other person works at IBM. John works with I, at IBM too. Um, and uh, uh, Leo is the son of the, this person that works at IBM. Uh, in some cases, right, you don't care about the specific relations. What you'd like to do is uh, quantify over all those relations and just find anything that applies. All links between the, the people uh, as far as uh, six or seven away or farther. Uh, okay, the next slide, and I believe, uh, well, there's just two slides, but uh, I can tell you what this, this slide is trying to do is show you the relative expressive power of some of the languages you may know about in the, um, in the semantic web uh, community. So RDF, for example, not very expressive. It's uh, it's basically what we call positive existential subset of first-order logic. Uh, it has no negation. It doesn't have universal quantification. Um, all light, more expressive. It's so the all light, all DL, and all fool are probably uh, well. All light and all, all all DL are no expressive than that uh, description logic uh, node. LDL is guaranteed to be guaranteed to have the formal properties of a 
uh, a particular kind of description logic. So that's the middle layer dialect, if you will, of OWL. OWL Lite is more expressive than RDF, and it's uh, comparable to a, a, a fairly uh, weak description logic. Uh, OWL DL is uh, more expressive than OWL Lite, and it's uh, equivalent to uh, uh, a little more expressive description logic. OWL Fool uh, is probably close to first order logic, um, but uh, and probably has the same, uh, uh, let's say, properties. Uh, in other words, uh, undecidability or, uh, or semi-decidability as first order logic. It just carves out things a little bit differently. Um, so I would still say it's probably less expressive, but close to first order logic. And now when you add things such as owl, uh, the swirl to owl, right? Now your uh, swirl is a rule-like language that gives you kind of, uh, well, uh, gives you a, a logic programming capability. So it gives, it's more expressive, uh, and uh, it might be, um, uh, in fact, it approximates uh, uh, first-order logic again, but it's still probably less expressive because it's more, the rule extension swirl has more of a horn clause like uh, limiting, uh, syntactic limiting uh, first-order logic. And then there could be uh, owl first-order logic, which would be some union of uh, owl or extensions to owl to include all the constructs of first-order logic. Um, the uh, I have those parallel uh, lines, uh, dotted lines, uh, and arrows out to the right, uh, which uh, there, there's other kinds of things we could characterize. We won't characterize here. Substructural logics, um, linear logic. Uh, I won't go into that now except to say that there's other things in the logical spectrum. Uh, finally, the last slide here is 46. Uh, which is trying to show just other languages that preceded and, and coexist with the semantic web languages. So uh, things such as uh, uh, data log, uh, a restricted form of uh, prologue uh, that the database community uses. Uh, uh, OKBC, which is an open knowledge-based connectivity language that uh, represents the uh, knowledge model for protege. Uh, a lot of folks know uh, Stanford in, uh, Medical Informatics Lab's protege uh, tool. It really has the underlying model, VOKBC, which is, again, less than first order. Um, there's other newer things uh, uh, beyond prolog, so constraint logic pro pro programming languages, of which there are many, that uh, really extend uh, the power of prolog. Uh, and then there's first-order languages, like we mentioned, like KIF and Common Logic, uh, that uh, really have at least first-order, and in some cases maybe some second-order-like things um, uh, that are pushed to first-order. So, uh, and then farther off in the, in the purplish uh, font are just some query languages, uh, for example. Uh, 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 we also have, oh, I forgot, PsychL out there, uh, which is, PsychL is probably actually closer to uh, a second order language because there, there are 
or even a higher order because there are constructs uh, in Psych-L uh, that uh, touch on those higher order logics. Uh, but in purple, then, are the query languages, some of the query languages that have been uh, expressed and defined in the past. Uh, okay, so, sorry for this extension, but uh, um, I, I, it's not complete, but I wanted to give you uh, a kind of a... Uh, we're diving into that ontology spectrum on the top part and trying to show uh, that there's still levels uh, of expressivity in terms of logics. Uh, and uh, what we're focusing on uh, when we when we deal with ontology languages, uh, we necessarily have to uh, uh, choose a language that probably corresponds to one of those levels of logic. Okay, thanks, everyone. Well, thank thank you very much, Leo. Uh, that leaves <coughs> us about ten minutes for uh, Q and A's and some discussion. So, uh, if if you have a question, could you just identify yourself now and then we can go go down one at a time until we run out of time. Uh, could, uh, who, who would have questions for Leo? Uh, I, I have a question for uh, you. Could you, could you just mention your name and hold the question first? Okay, sure. This uh, is Rex. Rex Brooks. Uh, yeah. Who else? Uh, uh, um, Peter Yim, I also have a few questions, actually. This is Pat Cassidy. I'll have one question. Pat Cassidy. Uh, who else? That's it? Okay, Rex. Sorry. Yeah, when you were discussing slide 38, and you gave the um, example of house painting as a pergerant, um, my question is, um, is that actually more the appearance of the house that's pertinent rather than the process of painting it? Because you can keep a process of painting it going indefinitely and have it constantly changing without having a state that's anywhere close to stable. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, when we talk about process, right, <coughs> the process itself doesn't, it, it perdures for some time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so so the, the process of painting a house, uh, we might, uh, we might, uh, characterize that you know before some time it hasn't begun, and after some time it's uh, it's painted. So the process of painting ends, uh, but it perdures for over some time, right? So uh, there might be uh, well, there's the beginning part of painting the house, and then there's the middle part of painting the house, and then there's the final part painting the house, and. You, you, when you, if you zoom in on that process, right, you, the beginning part might be, well, you collect your paints and your brushes and you set up your ladders or your flat, your scaffolding and, uh, you know, uh, you put on uh, your uniform or whatever. I mean, it could be however rich you want it to be, really. So, but we characterize the whole process of painting the house as that whole thing, right? Um, it, it might be the case that it ends at a specific time or it might be uh, a process that uh, uh, goes on, you know, indefinitely. It, it may end, but we may not know when it ends, right? Uh, uh, think of, uh, you know, the expansion of the universe or the contraction of the universe. Uh, we can characterize, uh, we can talk about that process, and we, and we may uh, theoretically say that it's going to end at a certain point if, in certain models, right? Uh, but we just don't know when, 
So it's indefinite, but it's known to be endable uh, at, at a certain point. Um, uh, and so you'll have, uh, you'll have certain things like that that you might want to characterize as perturbance. And they typically, they're the, they're the verb-like things. They're the process-like things. They're the, in, 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 at least in English, they're the, uh, the, they're the uh, things that uh, we, we, we call out that have more time necessarily involved. Not necessarily appearance, but so, so uh, you know, you, you might characterize the end of the process as, uh, well, we know it's ended when the paint is applied to this object we call it a house, and therefore the final brush stroke um, of the final, uh, you know, paint on the house uh, terminates the process of painting the house. Right. I, I just a little warning here. Uh, in, in ontology, I've seen process, this Pat, used in at least three and maybe four distinguishable senses. Oh yeah, no, no, in, in, it's, it's in like and, and many of these things, it gets a little. Processes and events actually are not disjoint, uh, in whereas in um, say WordNet, they actually constitute two different branches of, of yes, linguistic yes. tree. So uh, a process, an event, an activity, an action. Um, there's uh, a state. Uh, some of these things may, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, characterize uh, uh, distinct things that may involve time, for example, focusing on time, uh, or may be uh, involving perturbance. Uh, to say an action, you know, like uh, being shot, right? Uh, we'd like to characterize uh, John was shot uh, in a slightly different way than John painted the house. Right, uh, John was shot. It's more like a instantaneous thing. Uh, so typically, that might be an activity or an action, uh, which is might maybe a specific specific kind of event. Uh, whereas uh, you know, John painting the house is more like a process uh, that has consists of uh, sub processes that may have uh, you know uh, events or uh, activities or actions within. Thank you. you. You've clarified that for me. Thanks. Uh, Pat, since you've only got one question, could you go ahead? Well, it, it, it's sort of <coughs> open-ended. I, I, um, uh, the model-driven architecture uh, community, uh, I think, uh, it, it, it can, can profitably interact with the ontology community, but perhaps doesn't as much as it might. Uh, but they are concerned with uh, creating models and look toward ultimately their models being um, viewed as executable specifications. And I wanted to know if, if Leo had any, uh, what, what he would describe as the interaction between these sort of different perspectives on knowledge representation. Yeah, yeah. So my, uh, that slide, that <coughs> 41, <coughs> you might view that as, um, uh, you know, having, having on the, uh, the glasses of the... Uh, of the model-driven architecture community, right? Where uh, what they like to do is go towards uh, executable code, right? Your C or Java, uh, or you know your service, uh, whatever the implementation of the service is in the service paradigm. Um, but the, what they like to do is drive that from a model, right? So that at every point, you press the, you know, I mean, think about if you had a, a model and you could press a button. And it generated the code that executed uh, what the model expressed, right? 
that's what they're after. Now, it, of course, it means that you really have multiple layers of models um, because, uh, you know, uh, if you want, what language do you want the program to be in? Which uh, operating system should it be on? Should it be on a range of these? Uh, what kind of presentation, GUI interface? So there's, so these platform presentation application models, I say, are kind of intermediate models that uh, you need to uh, characterize at every level. They, they actually could be expressed as ontologies. Um, they're just ontologies uh, in, in terms of ontology models uh, at each layer. But the real domain, real-world semantic ontological model is at the top. So uh, there's efforts uh, in U, uh, OMG, for example, to create a model, uh, meta-model between uh, UML uh, and uh, uh, ontology languages, and including uh, OWL, for example. And they're fairly far along. Um, I think we're actually uh, both uh, on the same path. Uh, it's just that their uh, their perspective is slightly different. We just make need to make sure that we communicate. Uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, one question you you alluded to our uh, first order logic, our FOL. Uh, are you involved with that initiative, or if not, maybe uh, uh, someone in the audience might give us a sort of uh, brief status on where we are. As far as with OWL. what, which? OWL, F-O-L. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it, originally, I think they, they characterized, characterized it as Swirl, F-O-L, and then, uh, and then OWL, F-O-L. I don't think it's an active uh, activity. I think people have thought, uh, you know, there's been uh, discussions uh, at certain points to raise the uh, expressivity towards first order logic, but I don't think there's any... Uh, uh, and I, I, I might be wrong, but I don't think there's any uh, actual activity right now. Is, is that a sort of logical next step for OWL? Well, the, the current step might be uh, OWL swirl. Um, Please note that your conference will expire in 10 minutes. Uh, so uh, you might say that OWL swirl, and, and again, there, there's still controversy. There's a couple of different camps because, um, uh, the, in addition to the expressivity arguments we have, um, there, there's the semantic web stack of languages. Uh, uh, typically, that's talked about in terms of RD, XML at the bottom, and then an XML schema, and then RDF and RDF schema, and then OWL above it, and then Swirl above that. Well. There's also, uh, you know, let's say the, the European WISMO community and uh, 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 largely centered at Derry, uh, which is uh, the Dig Digital Enterprise Research Institute, uh, uh, that, uh, both in uh, Ireland and in Austria, uh, that says, well, you know, the, 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 we need another semantic web stack. <coughs> and they'll, they'll argue for something called description logic programs, uh, where uh, I'll, if our swirl is uh, kind of like uh, our with uh, some aspects of logic programming, uh, description logic programming is really 
the wedding of description logics with logic programming. And so, <coughs> so you you have a number of different camps. Uh, there's uh, this 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 uh, controversy is being played out currently in the uh, RIF, which is Rule in Interface uh, Framework uh, Working Group within W3C, which was just started, you know, like uh, a month or two ago. So we don't, even at the all-swirl level, um, there's not necessarily uh, people that are satisfied with that, let alone things that are more expressive. Okay. And then, of course, you know, off on the side is the ISO common logic community, <coughs> in, in which there's a lot, a lot of us in, are involved in both, uh, even you know, even within Ontolog. So I know, you know, uh, Mike Gruninger and Mike, uh, Mark, uh, Chris uh, Mensel, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Pat Cassidy. Uh, to some extent, we're all involved in, uh, in no, are aware of common logic and simple common logic. And uh, this this emerging language uh, called uh, ICL, which is something like um, uh, integrated or interoperable knowledge language, um, uh, uh, which which is probably uh, an extension of common logic to include context. Uh, so, but that's still in in the, on the drawing. Well, it's more than the drawing, uh, more than you know on the drawing pages, but. Uh, it's about halfway through a two-year effort. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Leo. And we pretty much ran out, ran out of time. And I really thank you for spending uh, two sessions with us and to share with us your insight. And on behalf of Ontolog Forum, I thank everyone for participating. And uh, thank you, Leo. Okay, thank you.